0: this is the new ideal podcast from the einrad institute i'm ilan journo with me today is Onkar Gate and a friend of the institute boaz arad we decided to go live today not on our usual schedule because of the war that's unfolding now in israel which was launched a few hours ago by hamas the islamist group that controls gaza strip Uh, We wanted you on, Boaz. Welcome. Uh, So you can give us a perspective. He's located in Israel, and what we'd love to hear from you is just a perspective on what are you hearing from the news, what is it like for you, and then we can turn into some commentary on what's happening. Welcome, Boaz.
1: So thank you and thank everybody that uh, listened to us. Uh, Today at 6 a.m. the Hamas uh, and other fraction in Gaza launched a multi-dimensional attack on Israel by uh, hitting Israel with a surprise attack of thousands of rockets all over the south of Israel and to uh, to the direction of uh, Jerusalem and other cities. And while the surprise was in its its height, uh, uh, blowing up and uh, making uh, a breach on the defensive fence around Gaza and uh, sending thousands of Hamas terrorists with uh, weapons, RPG, uh, AK and uh, on motorcycles and Toyota style, Taliban style uh, vehicles and they just start a killing spree of on everybody that was on road uh, spreading uh, very fast to where the cities that are located a few minutes drive from the border with Aza and starting to uh, massacre civilians and uh, so far the number we know uh, and been uh, approved by the Israeli TV is more than 200 Israeli civilians that been uh, massacred in the street and in, at homes and uh, more than 1,000 uh, people that been injured and some of them are severely injured, and we don't know if they will survive. Beside it, kids, women, elderly people, and some soldiers that have been taken by surprise been kidnapped to Gaza, wounded bodies and uh, live people, and uh, Hamas, used, Hamas used them as a life uh, shield uh, uh, in order to avoid Israeli retaliation. And this is a massive failure of preparedness, readiness, awareness. And uh, we are just 50 years after the Yom Kippur war. That was the strategic failure of Israel and the intelligence to to foresee the war that coming from all front. And uh, we now facing something that might be even more serious. And it's uh, the potential to grow to the north and to Syria, Lebanon, and all the proxies of Iran that basically stand behind the scene here and have the interest to to uh, ignite all the fronts around Israel. So this is in general the situation. The, and, and I may say that it's still going on. As we speak, I can feel it. The, the wave of air from the explosion of the Iron Dome that uh, intercepting missiles that now falling on Tel Aviv area. And uh, there is a heavy uh, missile bombardment from Gaza, thousands of missiles on the way to different cities in Israel. And under this situation, it's very, very difficult to organize and retaliate.
0: I was just going to add what I've seen and just before we went live, you were telling us you could feel the the counter rockets exploding overhead to uh, a few years ago in 2021. There was a rocket attack from Gaza, and during 11 days, they fired something like 4300 rockets in the last few hours since this conflict arose. They have already fired 3000 rockets just to give people a sense of the intensity and the scale of this attack.
1: Yeah, this is something which is unheard of. I mean, uh, I don't think that any country, nowhere, ever suffers such a massive bombardment of uh, rockets. And uh, I have uh, partners to the work of the Ayn Rand uh, Center in Israel that lives in uh, Ashkelon, which is uh, the, clo- the large close city to Gaza. and locked in the safe room from the morning with a burning car around in the parking lot from missile uh, impact and uh, the situation is very chaotic at least it was very chaotic at the beginning and uh, uh, it's still going on there is still some hostages situation in some of the cities and kibbutzim near gaza uh, and there is still uh, a pursuit after Hamas terrorists that spread all over the area among civilians and captured civilians as uh, hostages. And uh, it didn't end yet. I mean, the, the part of cleaning Israel from uh, this terrorist attack, even before retaliating uh, in regard to Gaza, and there is basic move to seal the border and uh, there was already a beginning of pounding on uh, some target in Gaza. But uh, this, of course, will be only the opening and uh, it's hard to say uh, where it's going to lead us because the response have to be uh, decisive, uh, uh, strong and uh, And as John Lewis wrote, nothing less than victory, and I'm afraid we are not there yet.
0: Well, thank you, Boaz. We appreciate you joining us today. Maybe you can hang on. We might bring you back into the conversation, but I want to bring Onkar in. Uh, Onkar, we've heard from Boaz. Uh, Just to get your first impressions on what you've seen so far.
2: Yeah. Obviously it's horrible I feel very bad for the people in Israel. I'm glad Boaz is um, doing okay the some of the world leaders have expressed the view that they're shocked by what is happening and that is crazy that one could be shocked that um, you have armed militants and they' you can call them terrorists but I think mean, these are really military organizations. Um, that it is dedicated to the destruction of Israel, and that they attack Israel should not be shocking. It, it should be shocking. The, you know, what it's shocking might be the Israeli intelligence failure that they seem to have been taken by surprise, but that that is that that is what Hamas is dedicated to, and that, that, that their whole reason for being is to do this kind of thing um, is. That's what they are. And it should not shock anybody in the world that this is happening. So that, that the immediate react and that it's, oh, we don't want it to escalate and so on. Their goal is the destruction of Israel. Like what, how are you not gonna escalate that? That is their whole mission. And if people will not face that fact, um, you're, this just repeats in cycles, years. It, 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 this is not the most powerful enemy but if you don't face the fact that you, this is, this is an enemy that needs to be destroyed, it will come back again and again and again. And that is part of what is, Israel is facing.
0: Yeah, I, I saw a comment, I think, from a, one of the Israeli officials saying this is their Pearl Harbor moment. And I am sympathetic to that for all the reasons that Boaz mentioned, the severity of this attack, the scale of it, and the the military the lack of military preparedness and, and it, it sounds like it's just the beginning so it's going to become a worse conflict and others have likened it to it's the israel's 11 and and i think in some respects i can understand why that's the reaction but as you're saying i want to just put underline on that because if anyone's been paying attention they need to look at what hamas is doing what it's geared to do what it's does what it why it exists and then just go back to 2021 or 2014 or 2012 or 2009 or 2005 all of those were cases where hamas launched attacks usually by rockets sometimes other weapons in one case they dug tunnels to infiltrate so all of the things that are now coming uh onto the uh into this conflict there were so many signs that this is the direction they were going in, both militarily, tactically, and in terms of their overall goal, that in those respects, it was really a matter of time. And this is the part, just to connect to what you're saying, this is the part that I think is the crucial point that is missed. And that is the only reason we are seeing this conflict right now is that there has been a complete failure to respond to what Hamas is about and this is both on the side of the israelis and on the side of their ally the us and many other countries and by that i mean that there is no evalu- no proper evaluation of what hamas is why it exists and what it's doing and hamas i think of as the leading palestinian faction it's, it's a representative of a wider movement so there's a what i call and, and so this is something i analyze in depth in my book what justice demands america and the israeli-palestinian conflict I call it why ju- what justice demands, because to me, the core issue in this conflict is the moral assessment of the adversaries. And my assessment of the failure of the Israelis and, and the U.S. and others on the, who see themselves as on the right side of this is that they are not taking seriously the moral character of Hamas or of Israel. And they, they try to walk this line of, well, there's, there's some valid points on both sides. We don't want to... Uh, uh, take sides too strongly and uh, there's uh, a way to find some reconciliation between the two we need a two state solution which is the article of faith that it's mind-boggling that that persists persists today it's 30 years since that whole venture was launched so there's this lack of attention to how are we actually thinking about these two sides is hamas really going to create a society that makes people free, that allows people to be free and prosper or is it really a, a nihilistic movement seeking to destroy a free society which is israel that whole kind of analysis that requires applying rational moral principles to this conflict that's what's missing that's that's core to the western slash u.s perspective to the, on this issue And the more you take that perspective, that kind of moral agnosticism, or or sometimes it's moral equivalence, depends on which side of the political spectrum you look, the more you take that, the more you become an apologist for the, the, the Palestinian movement's attacks and initiation of force against Israel, and the more you whitewash them. And I think that is part of what we've seen for decades now. Uh, it's actually very difficult to talk about this today. I mean, watching the news in preparation for knowing we would go live today, and it's it's really, really disturbing. And and I say this as someone who's spent years studying this conflict, and, and I've had to read and, and watch and listen to things that I would you can't unsee and you don't want to, and just spending, I spent a bit of time this morning, and I recommend people do this actually, looking at some of the videos that are surfacing on, the media, on CNN particularly because they're trying to validate some of these videos, but you can see them on on Twitter or X as it's called today. And I say this because I think it's important to see what Hamas is like. And I think of Hamas as it is not a minority faction in a larger community that opposes it. It is It it sees itself, and I think in, for good reason, it is the face of the Palestinian movement. And as some of the things I've seen, I, I won't try to describe them. but Boaz told us about hostage taking. He told us about desecrating, uh, killing people at random, massacring people in the fields, desecrating bodies. This is the face of what it looks like. This is the face of the Palestinian movement. This is, there is no legitimate goal after which they're they're motivated to 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 work. They're just there to tear things down and kill people. And my the one hope I have out of this conflict is that this will be a moment of reckoning for people who who have been lying to themselves that the Palestinian movement really just is a, a movement about righting wrongs from history and i don't think that's true and i think this is a moment where there's, there's there has been ample evidence of that for years but this perhaps will refocus people on this issue um i just want to turn it back to you on for a minute if you have any thoughts on that before we turn to other topics on this
2: yeah that that's a crucial point and it's anybody who is on the side of individuals who are actually interested in peace, in freedom, in living a prosperous life, whether they're born in Palestine or Palestinian or Israeli, would be pro the Israeli government and anti-Hamas. You will be anti any dictatorship, whether it's secular or religious. and what, all you need to know about Hamas, they, like this would be sufficient. If, even if they weren't dedicated to the destruction of Israel, they're an authoritarian, dictatorial gang. Um, and they terrorize their own people. And it's not surprising that they will terrorize their neighbors. And if, if anybody who thinks that, oh, that, like, I care about Palestinians, and you should care about Palestinians who genuinely want freedom. But if you actually care about those people, you have to be aggressively anti-Hamas, anti-the PLO, basically anti-every group that says that they speak for Palestinians. What they speak for is forced violence, dictatorship, and the destruction, the destruction of of everybody, including Israel. And so anybody who thinks that we have oh, all, like there's some good or something on both sides that we have to somehow broker a ceasefire and an agreement and so on, is um, is aiding and abetting killing people.
0: It's a difficult point to say as fighting is unfolding and I, and I hesitate to, to, to bring this up, but I think it, it, it's important to say it, that in significant part this uh, explosion, this attack, this sort of, um, horrific inv- attempted invasion in different ways uh, and massacring—this was entirely preventable. And I don't mean this as a as an issue of military preparedness or intelligence. And I, and I expect there'll be analysis of that. And but that's not my point. I think the point is deeper in. In that there were multiple opportunities in the past when the conflicts the hamas started were of a, a much smaller scale hundreds of rockets not thousands a few people trying to crawl out of tunnels not dozens not armed and not with the sophisticated drones that they now have many years ago the, all of the dress rehearsals in effect for this that we're seeing today in the news and the re- reason that Israel, which is has the capability to end Hamas, to, to liquidate this movement, to, to uproot it from the Palestinian society and defeat it. And I think that's the goal it should have. It should have as a goal, the elimination of Hamas, the defeat of it and victory over it in that sense. it The, the Israelis refused to do that. And, and they didn't refuse to do that on their own. They did it that with pressure from the United States in many cases and the UN, the United Nations, and practically every country that sees itself as an ally of Israel, that sees itself as standing for freedom and sees itself as standing for the values of, of uh, free societies and multiple occasions when Israel was facing a similar or smaller scale uh, uh, confrontation like this, they held back. They did not act in, in self-defense fully. They, they, let, they left enough of what was Hamas so that Hamas rebuilt. And this is a cycle now that is it's practically like clockwork. And I mentioned earlier the, the the 2021, 2014, there's so many of these instances. And in all of those, as strong as the Israeli response was, it didn't and it wasn't designed to completely eradicate this movement and defeat it and, and make it clear that anyone who takes up arms in the name of this cause is, is pursuing a lost cause. They did not do that. And that was part of a policy they held which viewed it as they're gonna reduce the level of threat down knowing that it will come back. And if you do that, you're being irresponsible. And this is this is part of what makes it difficult because Israel is fighting to defend itself against these people, but it's still true that they. I think that's negligent. It, the, the, the responsibility of a government facing an attack like this is to eliminate that threat as quickly and efficiently as possible with minimum uh, uh, loss of life on their own side. And to fail to do that and deliberately knowing that this is just means you're kicking the can down the road you're, you're allowing them time to rearm and come back at you that is negligence that is not what it looks like to defend yourself and to defend the freedom of the people who are in that society um, and i think this is i, I want to tie this to u.s policy. So this is I, i'm circling around topics that i talk about in the book what justice demands And I talk about some of these past conflicts and the the mentality of the Israeli policy toward this, but I think it's important to tie this to a wider context where America has a significant role in this conflict, not only as a self-styled arbiter trying to bring the two sides over many decades into some sort of negotiated settlement, some sort of so-called peace process, but also as a major uh, uh, force pressuring Israel and pressuring it to appease and allow the Palestinians uh, to to get away with murder, essentially, I mean, there's no way around that. And that has been true. And this is a point I develop in the book. You see this not only under democratic leadership, you see it under Republican leadership. And even the so-called, find the most pro-Israel Republican in in the White House, and I'll show you evidence that they were not truly pro-Israel. If, the, if what you mean by that is recognizing a free society as morally superior to a dictatorship, a theocracy, which is what the Palestinians are working for and have established, and the idea that you have to discriminate morally between those two kinds of societies. And, and that is the, a, a, a significant failure across many, many years, across different administrations. And I, I think this is, and I raise this because America is seen as America's shield. And in some ways it is it it provides military support and it has rhetorically at least is vocal in supporting israel but i don't think in substance that's really true because what that requires is a moral strength and a moral clarity that has been absent for decades
2: the way i think about it is that u.s foreign policy and as you said this it's across decades it's republicans democrats it's every president um since at least Carter is not pro-Israel because they're not pro-American. We do not have a foreign policy that is pro-America and the consequence is we don't have a foreign policy that's pro-Israel because it would be an essential part of American foreign policy if it were actually dedicated to protecting and advancing the US interests that we would view Israel as an unalloyed ally and we would be on its side as the as the representative of peace technology reason science in a area of the world that has disdain for all those things um and and including political freedom and the fact that it's oh we, we don't want to be seen as too much on the side of israel because it might the um, uh, upset Saudi Arabia or some other dictatorship and so on. It, it, it's so profound, it's profoundly immoral and it's profoundly anti-American and it's, it's against our interests. And the, the part of the context for what is happening now, and I, I, I think basically we've talked about this on many podcasts, that the context for understanding all the major events in the 21st century, in my view, is 9-11. And this came to the fore in 9-11, that what should have happened when America was attacked on September 11th is, yeah, our foreign policy has failed. We don't know what we're doing. We have to radically and fundamentally rethink what we're doing. Part of that should have been, yeah, our only actual ally in the Middle East is Israel and we need to view that in the right way and be 100% on Israel's side. And there should have, so there was talk after 9-11, we need a coalition. And instead of the coalition just being the US and Israel, and we're now going to completely, both countries are gonna reverse course in their foreign policy. They're not gonna appease, they're not gonna try to have agreements, they're not gonna think the other side actually values um, anything other than their destruction. And so the only goal should be to end the threat of these regimes principally and centrally um, Iran. And we should have allied with Israel towards the goal of the complete destruction, which means the destruction of the Israeli, I mean the Iranian regime, that if we're doing regime change, Iraq was not the important thing. It was, Iran had to be basically politically destroyed. And it actually, I mean, my view of the Middle East is it's the one of the country, or maybe the only country other than Israel, that you could imagine some um, pro-freedom factions and groups actually arising if you got rid of the religious dictatorship in Iran. And far from doing that, if you remember in the days and weeks after 9 11 the u.s went out of its way we can't look like we're too much in agreement with israel and and we might upset saudi arabia and other arabs and muslims and so on so and we actually proposed a coalition that iran would be part of and like it's that is it's such a betrayal of israel but it's such a betrayal of the united states and this is after we're attacked and we uh, 2000 plus people are killed and we can't say, look, the only people who are actually on the side of freedom in the Middle East is Israel. And so they should be our allies and, and completely our ally. And like, if you have a foreign policy like that, what can you expect? You can't predict philosophically when the next attack will be. and so. On. But we've talked a lot about the aftermath in 9-11, how disastrous it is for the U.S. And it's gonna be a disaster for its allies. It's, uh, people who are actually on the side of the same values that the U.S. should be. And Israel's paying part of that price.
0: I wanna bring in a couple of questions that we're getting on YouTube. Thanks for those of you who joined us today and we appreciate your support. And if you are, uh, have further questions, we'll try to fit them in as best we can. I expect we'll talk more about this subject on future podcasts if you don't get your question in today will we'll come back to you at some point, hopefully. One of the questions is, is Israel still supplying water and electricity to Gaza? That comes up uh, twice. I I think this is, I want to touch on this topic because I think it goes to a deeper issue we talked about. So we talked about um, the sort of the thinking around foreign policy, the moral equivalence, and then you've been raising the way this, that has rippled through since 9-11 in American thinking too. I, I just want to, bring out more that, in my view, this is essentially a moral issue, not a foreign policy issue. So the the way I think of foreign policy and the way I write about it in the book is through the, the, the perspective that what defines foreign policy are your moral principles. And if you shirk that, or if you have the wrong moral principles, or if you think they're irrelevant, all of that is destructive. So this question about, is Israel supplying water and electricity to Gaza, You can broaden it to, has Israel, uh, um, this is in the context of for the last uh, uh, decade plus, Israel has put Gaza on and off under a blockade. Naval and other kinds of uh, cargo are not allowed to come in. They have to inspect everything. So they have done that precisely because of the previous attacks. So they don't want military equipment being uh, smuggled in. They don't want uh, Hamas getting, money and so forth so there's been a blockade but at the same time and this goes to the part of the moral issue israel has supplied gaza with electricity and water and and other resources so the medical supplies and things like that and that i think is an example of a a, um, an idea that ayn rand uniquely defined which is the idea of the sanction of the victim so when you actively support those who are out to destroy you, and this is a, a stark example of it, because it, it, this isn't subtle. This is not somebody who's trying to behind the scenes manipulate you and undermine you. They're passing regulations that are hard to, to understand, but in the end, they're really going to cripple your business or something along those lines, which is actually a, an example of the kind of thing that she's talking about other the many manifestations of this phenomenon. But the essential is that you, in effect, enable, fund, enrich feed support those who are out to get you to destroy you to undermine you and in this case for it i don't think it's defensible for israel to do this and i think they do it because they don't have the moral confidence to say no we we can't support you we can't enable you because we know the consequences that i think there's an, an an element of evasiveness about this such that wouldn't the natural thing to do 15 plus years ago when Hamas takes over this Gaza Strip is to completely shut them down, let them implode, or, and worse, maybe go in there if you have to. But instead of that, they have enabled them to, to persist. And the same is true with the so-called blockade, which I mentioned briefly. The blockade is is a topic that critics of Israel have been wheeling out periodically to demonstrate how merciless and cruel Israel is. And, and I think of it as the, it's the inverse. It's, it's, it's an evidence of how Israel is def, is neg- negligent in its defense of its own people by allowing a porous blockade to enable Hamas to stay in power. So in effect, it's propping up those who are out to destroy it. So I think this is a, a crucial issue. So I don't know if they're gonna keep the electricity going or the water, maybe they will pause it, but I, I, would, I would be surprised if they end it permanently. We'll see how this conflict unravels. But to me, that is a a fundamental issue that you, that's part of what it means to think about foreign policy from a moral perspective. And I think Ayn Rand's moral theory gives us such powerful tools for understanding situations that are highly complex like this one. And I think some of what you were raising, Ankar, about the way we treat Saudi Arabia and Iran. Just the other week, we did a podcast about the, the whitewashing of Saudi Arabia under the Biden's administration. Uh, There was talk about the Saudis will normalize relations with Israel if they get a nuclear facility, they get more weapons uh, and and they get uh, the U.S. to uh, agree to defend Saudi Arabia in a mutual defense pact, which for people interested, go listen to that podcast. But that is another example of ignoring the nature of Saudi Arabia and enabling it to continue doing bad things that harm American interests. And that's, that's sort of the, the defining feature of our relationship with Saudi Arabia for as long as I've been noticing it and definitely since 9-11. And that's what it should not be. So in every direction that you look here, and this is a, a theme that I try to develop in the book, is that the, the issue is essentially moral. You really have to think about the character of the adversaries, the character of the different players in the region, and use that knowledge, that moral knowledge, to guide policy and political uh, considerations. And to the extent that you don't do that, you're hamstringing yourself. You're you're making it impossible or, or severely hampering your ability to both define and understand and pursue your own interests.
2: And you have to be willing to do this at a fundamental level. So in the end, foreign policy is an issue of application. If we're talking about the self-interest of an of a nation or of a free nation, the self-interest of the US or of Israel, the, you're thinking about the self-interest of a country, but the deeper question is, is morality about self-interest or is it about surrendering and sacrificing your self-interest? And you brought up the sanction of the victim. And part of the reason that Ayn Rand can identify this as a principle, that is operative in so many cases and how the good is undermined by its own acquiescence is that she, more fundamentally, is the opponent of altruism. She's the opponent of a morality that tells you that self-sacrifice is good, noble, what you should do. And you have to take seriously that people are told this repeatedly and that in times of crises, part of what happens is people revert to a moral perspective and if this is their moral perspective, it paralyzes the good and it emboldens evil. And if do you think of it in this context, part of what the sanction of the victim means that and that we've heard this over and over and over again is love your enemy, that is the explicit call for the victim to offer not blows to the person who's persecuting him, but his own love. That, that's what the sanction of the victim means. You're attacking me and I'm going to treat you as like, oh yeah, you're a good person. Maybe I should even love you and so on. That call is one of the most immoral calls that there has ever been in the history of ideas. Like G- Jesus, in that kind of pronouncement, it's one of the most evil things that has ever been pronounced in the history of ideas. And, but people take that seriously, like it's uncontroversial. Love your neighbor and even your enemy. And that is actually what has happened over and over in the Middle East, both from the US and from Israel. I mean, so uh, just thinking about Hamas, it's after 9-11, and, and there were further attacks after 9-11, our foreign policy was to bring the vote to these people explicitly acknowledging yet even if they vote in people who want to kill us and want to eradicate israel yeah that's what we have to do and that is the implementation and practice of the moral principle of you have to love your enemy and it's this is part of what it means that these ideas have consequences. It's easy to gloss them over. Yeah, we've all heard this, and maybe people don't really believe it and so on. But the foreign policy is is such an obvious example, if you care to actually look at it and think of what is actually happening, of these ideas actually being put in practice. And they're put in practice because people actually believe them and have been taught over and over to believe them. And unless you're willing to question that and, and to think, yeah, maybe it's all wrong—not just like it's a little bit wrong. So, like everything we've been told about this is wrong. Um, you're never going to get a reversal of strategy, um, and that—that's that, part of the tragedy of America's foreign policy and Israel's as a as a in part as a consequence
0: one thing i anticipate after this conflict comes to some sort of resolution or or a stalemate or whatever the outcome is one a couple of things to anticipate and i think they they all are related to this theme that we've been talking about that the way moral ideas play out and the need to question them fundamentally one of the things to anticipate is the the accusations of so-called war crimes and i say so-called not because i don't think people commit atrocities in war because i think the way people think about how to evaluate those is wrong i expect that will come up and it will be by it will be lopsided towards Israel's not the one following the the priest the, the moral I- ideas on this issue so not following the, the international norms on this even as hamas is obviously doing the the exact same things and much much worse things and it won't be held to account because i think the 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 way people think about war crimes and morality in war is pervaded by this altruistic self-sacrificial perspective and so that is what we saw in previous rounds of this conflict with israel being taken over the coals and long long un reports about how it, it has failed to meet the international laws of war even as Hamas is ignoring them and flouting them, because it's a a completely perverse approach which holds the better party in a conflict to a standard that the other party just knowingly flouts and you can't avoid that. That's just inherent in an altruistic principle, like the the kind that are governing the laws of war. And another thing to to anticipate coming forward once this gets further down the road um, is that the I don't think there's a way around the fact that what isn't being evaluated is the the ideas on both sides. And and we've been arguing, and this is something I develop in the book, and I think it's a complex point to, to, to make it objective, but I think in this context. There's a day and night difference between Israel and the Palestinians and the Palestinian movement, I should say, not individual Palestinians. I I want to distinguish there. And Hamas is the. I think the the most clear cut example of just how evil this movement is. It's exploitative of the Palestinians themselves, and it's hostile to freedom within its own territory and against Israel. But the the point I, I, I want to draw out here is that one can't look at this conflict and can't look at this current fighting that's happening right now as i'm speaking you can't look at it and imagine that you can come to understand it without bringing the kind of moral perspective we've been talking about but even more deeply you can't understand it without bringing a wider philosophic framework to this and that has to when we're evaluating hamas versus israel part of what we're evaluating is what are the ideas that animate them what kind of society are they building those are philosophic questions how do they treat their own people that's a that's a philosophical question and to understand them at least you have to understand the ideas that dominated and one of the failures you were alluding to on in the post nine eleven period and even before but it was more apparent in the uh, period afterwards is the evasion of the dominant ideas in the region the evasion that for decades in in the the major turning point was 1979, the the Islamist movement was coming to dominate people's thinking throughout the region. And that was a big change. That was a, an ideological change that uh, the Islamists came to supplant the, the, the socialists, leftists, and and nationalists who were dominant for many decades in the 20th century. But that is something that you have to understand as a fundamental that shapes the Middle East. And that is just absent from policy thinking and from, from foreign policy in the US. And uh, and, and that's crucial because that's to, to your point about why Iran was so central post 9-11 and before, it's precisely because Iran is an embodiment and sees itself as trying to lead the Islamist movement. And Hamas is, it's, it's not a puppet of Iran, but it's ideologically allied with Iran. It's supported by Iran. They collaborate, they work together because they have similar goals. They're, theocratic, dictatorial, and I think in the end, nihilistic. They're, they're not trying to create societies in which people can live and thrive. They're trying to dominate people and destroy human lives. And that is a crucial perspective. And, and I think that's part of what philosophy brings. Uh, and I think Ayn Rand's philosophy in particular brings to this whole issue. So it's, I, I think it, it takes work to think about what's happening in the region. It takes specialized knowledge in many cases it takes having, even having that what's still necessary and what is often missing. And I think this is the crucial part of what I try to do in the book is to give people the framework for integrating all the the data, integrating all the history to the extent that you can find out what's happening and understand it at that conceptual level. So versus last week, this person was shot. So there's a retaliation. Oh, there's a cycle of violence. That is the epitome of exactly what it looks like to do the wrong thing, which is to be very concrete oriented, concrete bound, and empty it of philosophic significance, empty it of all moral thinking more concretely, and just have a a kind of uh, news cycle driven understanding, which you need to know what's going on, but that's not the way to think about these issues. You need a broader framework uh, and I, and I, that's the one of the things I hope people take away from this conversation is that, yes, as you're watching the news, it's important to know what's going on. That all has to fit into a wider picture. And that's part of what I think objectivism gives us as a way to integrate developments and evaluate them and think about what's coming next and what to do and why and how it is that. I mean, we haven't said this, but I think this is it. It bears repeating. For the two decades since 9 11 we 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 made predictions we said here's what to anticipate not in a concrete sense of here's next tuesday this is going to happen but this is the pattern of what to expect this is why it's going to go wrong and repeatedly we were proven right and i think it's it's not because we have uh, special powers what we have is the ability to think philosophically and understand trends and understand the fundamental role of ideas shaping policy shaping the middle east and that's i think what's critical here is that you, it gives you real understanding uh and absent philosophy i think you're you're groping in the dark
2: yeah that that's important that it the if you're really trying to understand the causality of what is going on you have to look across years and decades um other if if you're just staring at the journalistic events you'll have this kind of reaction of the world leader oh i'm shocked now by what's going what wasn't a week ago weren't they talking about having some kind of agreement or ceasefire and this or that but if you understand it in terms of the ideas and how those the ideas and the motivations and how that plays out over decades then you just you have a radically different perspective on what is going on. I want to say just one thing about what you brought up because I we've already started to see this about um, there's going to be the scrutiny of Israel's response. There's pleas from world leaders don't escalate. So I mean you, you've got your civilians massacred in the streets as Boaz was talking about, and really like what you're worried about is that they might escalate. Israel might escalate after being attacked, um, and. Anyone who has that kind of perspective might think that, well, yeah, I'm on the side of peace and I'm on the side of freedom and I just want to see people prospering on. But if your fundamental perspective is not, oh my God, what is Israel gonna do now after many of its citizens are massacred? If your fundamental perspective is not, what does Hamas do day to day to its own subjects? who are repressed, beaten, and so on. And if that's not like, if we're gonna investigate and report, it's not now what is Israel gonna do and what are some of its soldiers gonna do or, or will somebody overreact and so on. If it's not like, what is life like under these regimes day to day? And if you're not, um, as we talked about earlier on, if you're not fundamentally opposed to Hamas, the PLO and so on, you might think you're on the side, like I'm on the side of freedom and I wanna see peace and prosperity, but you're not. And if what your worry is about is about someone acting in self-defense and how are they going to uh, react versus what what happens to disarmed victims, that these are gangs that have seized power in these, what do they do to their disarmed subjects? If that's not your primary focus, so if the primary focus is not the evils of Hamas and the PLO, but real or alleged um, overreaction from some Israeli soldier or you're not actually on the side of freedom and on, of life.
0: I just want to, we should probably wrap up in a couple of minutes. I, I want to make a couple of other observations about the orientation people have and... You said this, and I want to amplify it, which is that, in my view, that if you think about individual people who identify as Palestinian, who live under Hamas or live in the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority, who see themselves as Palestinians, the, the, the forces that have been the worst in victimizing them are their own leaders. The Palestinian movement broadly, as a political enterprise, over decades it's it's done much worse things to them than people realize and it not only if you tally the cruelty and the oppression and the the authoritarianism the dictatorship and the theocracy it it's hijacked their lives it is brainwashed them or, or it's inculcated in them an ideology that is uh false and destructive to them and on top of that, it uses to the extent there are, there are Palestinians who've had wrongs done to them in the history. And I talk about this in the book. The Palestinian movement exploits that in ways that are not just that, that are violations of what justice looks like and uses that to gain some foothold of credibility with people on the outside who have no way of understanding what's going on and are, are uh, in the thrall of altruistic thinking. So it, it, it gulls people into thinking the Palestinian cause has some legitimacy. And to me, that is an exploitation of the Palestinians generally, and an exploitation of, in particular of the ones who have some claim that needs to be adjudicated or had some claim in the past that needs to be adjudicated. And in that sense, the Palestinian movement is the aggressor in two directions. It's an aggressor against its own people and the people it claims to be uh uh speaking for and and writing wrongs on behalf of and it's an aggressor in what we're seeing right now in its attacks on israel not just today and especially today but over many decades uh since it became the forefront of this conflict so i think i i just want to leave people there and i hope that's provocative because that's not typically how people think of the Palestinian movement and that's part of what i think you need to get to is you need to really question uh what is animating both sides of this conflict and think about that morally and deeply uh any final thoughts from you Anka, before we wrap up
2: no no i agree that that's if people are willing to rethink this issue that's what they have to rethink
0: yeah i just want to see if we can bring boaz back for just a minute and see just to both thank you and just make sure we if there's anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up boaz if you're still with us Hi, Boaz. Any final thoughts from you on the ground? I think we we need to unmute you. Just a second there. Yeah. Let's uh, let's try again.
1: Thank you all for supporting the moral side here. This is a rare voice that needs to be heard. And unfortunately, we don't have it yet in uh, the scale that we need to have it. Uh, to, in order to affect the American foreign policy that basically restrain the Israeli policy, and uh, I'm afraid that uh, even though we need to re, uh, to flatten Gaza, to uh, destroy Hamas, to win, it will not be possible under these moral circumstances. So I really wish. Uh, that uh, this work that uh, we are doing in Israel, in the U.S., in the Ironman Institute uh, will prevail in the future so we can live in a real peace.
0: Thanks and stay safe. Thanks for joining us today. We'll we'll follow this topic and I expect we'll do more podcasts uh, in the days and weeks to come. Thank you all for being with us today on this extraordinary episode of New Ideal Live. We will be back with another podcast sometime this week, and we look forward to joining you. Thank you all for being on uh, the YouTube Super Chat and supporting our work, and thank you for your interest in what we have to say. We'll be back next time. Thank you.
2: You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.